Well, please open your Bibles and turn with me once again to 1 Corinthians. This time to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2 through 16. Uh, Today marks the start of a new block of teaching in uh, Paul's letter that will run through chapter 14, uh, dealing with uh, matters related to the worship of the church. Uh, So we'll talk a little bit more about the Lord's Supper. Uh, We will think about uh, spiritual gifts and their use in the worship of the church. But today, today it's 1 Corinthians 11, verses 2 through 16. And I should tell you at the start that many believe this to be one of the most difficult passages in the New Testament. Um, And I think that's for a number of reasons. Paul's argument is uh, is dense and difficult to to follow at times. There are perhaps uh, historical, cultural details that we are unfamiliar with uh, that may help us better understand the passage. But I also think that distinctly modern concerns surrounding the issue of headship and how we should understand authority may preoccupy us to the point that we actually miss what Paul is teaching in this passage. And so, needless to say, we have our work cut out for us this morning. And as we always do, we need God's help. So let's pray before we read. Lord, we, uh, we thank you for this portion of your word, and we thank you that you uh, have inspired it through the Apostle Paul, and that it's given for our instruction and our good. Would you please teach us today about what it means to be men and women and what we are for? And we pray uh, this morning for the virtue of patience. Um, we, we live in a society that uh, teaches us to be impatient, to rush things, um, to get quick results. But sometimes, Lord, to to really understand and appreciate the depths of your word, we need to slow down and we need to think carefully and we need to think um, responsibly. So would you please give us the grace to do that? Please help me as I seek to handle this uh, challenging portion of your word to explain it clearly and faithfully. And we pray that your word would do its work in our lives and conform us to Christ Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. 1 Corinthians 11, let's pick it up in verse 2 and hear the word of the Lord. Now, I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered, dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a man will, uh, a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for 
a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. It's all easy to follow, right? And all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. I remember hearing a sermon on this text a number of years ago by a pastor I interned under, and he read this passage and looked up and said, all right, any questions? <laughs> and I think he was hoping that there would be none and that he could call it a day at that point. But of course, when you read this passage, uh, your mind is filled with questions, isn't it? Right, what's the deal with head coverings? Why is it dishonoring if men pray and prophesy with their heads covered? And uh, why is it dishonoring if wives, I think as, as we're, we should read it here, wives pray with their heads uncovered? What does Paul mean when he says man is the image and glory of God, woman the glory of man? What does he mean when he says that woman was made for man? Is this Paul the misogynist? Or is he in fact ratcheting up the significance of woman? What does he mean? That surely raises eyebrows today, that phrase, a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head. And if that's not bizarre enough in our modern world, because of the angels, what do angels have to do with this? And what's this stuff about hair length and nature? If you're anything like me, after reading this passage, your head is spinning and is full of all kinds of questions. Now, there are so many questions we could ask. We certainly, we cannot deal with them all today. And I'll plead your patience as we try to do what we can with the time we have. But let's try to make as much sense as we can of the big concern of this passage and how it applies to us today. And I want to do that by asking two simple questions of this text. First, what is the problem Paul is addressing? Secondly, how does he address it? Right, those are the two questions we're going to try to answer together today. So let's start with the first. What is the problem? What is the problem Paul is addressing here? Here's what I think it is. The problem 
is that Christian men and women in Corinth were misrepresenting what it means to be male and female. Both men and women in the Corinthian church were failing to act like men and women. And so, if, if, if that's right, while this passage may, in first reading, seem to be really obscure and very you know, irrelevant, I think what we'll discover is that it speaks with urgency directly to issues people are facing today. What does it mean to be male and female? How should we live as men and women? How, how should we uphold and maintain proper gender distinctions in a culture that is bent on erasing any and all distinctions? See, in this passage, Paul is addressing those kinds of issues within a particular cultural context. And he, he grounds his teaching, notice, not merely in temporary uh, social customs, but in the end, in nature and in creation. And so, while the practice of head coverings is no longer something that is required today, not something we practice, the underlying teaching is directly relevant to our lives. Now, I think it's really helpful to know some things about Corinth here as we get started. It's helpful to know that the city of Corinth had a reputation for gender bending. If philosophers around this time actually expressed a great deal of concern about people who were deliberately violating accepted and expected social norms and gender norms. They wrote against men who, who shaved their beards and their bodies in order to uh, appear more feminine because they believed, according to physiological understanding of that time, that men were by nature more hairy than women. And so it was thought to be unnatural, even against nature, for a man to shave his beard because it made him appear to be more feminine. These same philosophers, they also wrote about a group of women that we're going to talk about more this morning who rejected gender norms and social expectations. And the city of Corinth was repeatedly and directly associated with these things. So let me just give you one example from Epictetus, a Greek Stoic philosopher who, who wrote a discourse addressing these issues. And uh, at one point, he addresses men who were attempting to make themselves look more feminine, and according to him, acting against nature by shaving themselves to look like a woman. And at one point, he He's questioning these hairless men, and he asks them, Shall we make such a one of you, as you, a citizen of Corinth? Okay, so who does this philosopher think of when he is, when he's criticizing men failing in the Greco-Roman world to maintain and uphold differences between men and women? He, he thinks straight away of the people of Corinth. The Corinthians had a reputation for blurring lines between male and female. Men not acting like men. Women acting contrary to nature. As it was understood in that time. And so this was, this was a problem. A 
prevalent problem in, in the culture. But, as we're going to see, it was also a problem within the church, but in different ways. And a symptom of the problem was how head coverings were being used, misused, in the church. Uh, you know, bear, bear with me today. We're going to spend some more time on historical background than we usually do. Because I think it's key for understanding this passage. I think it will help shed a lot of light on it. We need to understand that the practice of head coverings did not originate in the Christian church. It was a cultural practice in the Greco-Roman world. So in the Roman Empire, men and women covered or uncovered their heads in certain situations. And this covering was a kind of social indicator. Right? It communicated something. But the, the Corinthian Christians, when they gathered together, were wearing and not wearing head coverings in the church in problematic ways, given the cultural significance and meaning of head coverings. Now, I, I think this is right. Usually when people uh, mention 1 Corinthians 11, you know, where does your mind immediately go? I think for most folks, they immediately think of, of women in head coverings or wives in head coverings. But you notice that's actually not where Paul begins. Paul actually starts by talking about men wearing head coverings. That comes up in verse 4, and he, he comes back to it again in verse 7. So apparently some men in the Corinthian churches were covering their heads when they prayed or prophesied. And what does Paul say about this? He says it is a dishonorable practice. A man should not cover his head. It brings dishonor to Christ. Okay, so what's the problem? We've got to ask that question. Why was it wrong for men to cover their heads when praying or prophesying? Here's where I think knowing a little bit of the cultural significance might help us. See, in the Roman world, it was customary for men of status, we might say social elites, to cover their heads whenever they prayed in a pagan temple. Not all men did, but particularly men of status and those who were priests uh, covered their heads whenever they were engaged in any kind of religious activity. Archaeologists have dug up uh, statues and coins of men of prominence with head coverings. And many of these have actually been found in ancient Corinth. So we need to understand this. Not all men covered their heads, but ones leading would. And in the pagan temple context, it was meant to communicate something about that man's social status. It was meant to say that he was a high-ranking individual. He was somebody to be respected in the community. And so in the Corinthian church, it looks like the men were duplicating this, they were following this practice in the Christian church. But, but coverings of this kind, you know, bearing this kind of significance, what it inevitably did was, what, 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 what do you think it did? It drew the focus and the attention to the man. It began to establish inappropriate distinctions and classes within 
the church. It put the focus on the one who is praying and prophesying, identifying him as a man of status and rank and importance. And that may very well be then why Paul says this dishonors Christ. Now later, Paul will say that men are made in the image and glory of God. Hang on to that, because there Paul is telling us what men are for. And that's really what he's getting at here. Instead of reflecting Christ and and thereby reflecting his glory, here are these men and they're bringing him dishonor. Because the antithesis of men honoring Christ is making everything about them. Christ is not honored by self-serving, self-exalting men. So so just think about it with me. If, If men were covering their heads in a culture where this was a way of indicating rank and status, then this practice in the church communicated entirely the wrong message about the Christian community and entirely the wrong message about what it means to be a man. These men were giving the impression that the church really is no different than the world. There are the haves and the haves-nots dividing along class lines. This is what the, the message was, uh, this was the message that was being communicated. But more fundamentally, as I hope we'll see as we keep going here, they were misrepresenting manhood. They were distorting masculinity instead of seeking to serve and to nurture and to edify and to build up the church. They were seeking glory for themselves. And so if Paul's big concern in this passage really is gender, what it means to be a man or a woman, then his teaching really does have abiding implications for us men, doesn't it? put, Put it negatively. There's something profoundly unmasculine about men seeking to make everything about themselves instead of serving others in their lives. Men who exalt themselves distort, fundamentally distort, God's purpose for manhood. And they take the focus off of Christ where it belongs. And so as we'll see, Paul wants men to reflect Jesus in his servant-hearted headship which never sought self-exaltation, but always sought the good of the other. Now, Paul, Paul turns, though, to address women, or I think in this section of 1 Corinthians 11, he has particularly in view wives. The tricky thing is the Greek word's the same for women and wives, so you've got to decide in context who's in mind. And I think here It's wise because in the Greco-Roman world, it was wives who wore head coverings when they were in public. So in church gatherings, some of these wives, this is significant to notice in and of itself, in the assembly of the church, there were women praying and prophesying. Now, we're not even going to open that can of worms today. We'll we'll come to that later as we continue on in, in 1 Corinthians, but that's worth noting. They were praying alongside of the men. But unlike the men, they were doing it without a head covering. But like the men, instead of making visible 
the distinct glory of another, they were bringing shame and dishonor. So take a look at verse 5. Every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, her, her husband. Okay, so now Paul's beef is with wives praying or prophesying without a head covering. And again, we have to ask the question, what's the problem here? What's the big deal? Remember, Paul's big concern is about gender and appropriate gendered differences. And the underlying principle here is man, the image and glory of God, woman, the glory of man. We're going to try to understand that and unpack that here in a few minutes. But we've got to remember that's the driving concern here. Paul wants Christian men and women to recognize gender differences and to reflect those differences in culturally appropriate ways. And the cultural practice of the time of head coverings for wives was one appropriate way to honor that distinction. See, head coverings, they, they served a different purpose for women in the Roman world than, than the men. A woman wore a head covering in public, again, as a social signal, but it, it signaled that she was, she was taken. <laughs> she was married. That in the mind of, uh, of uh, the Greco-Roman world, she was under the authority of her husband. Paul uses that very language here. It represented, in other words, her marital status. Okay, so this was the custom, and it was expected that married women would wear a head covering whenever they were in public, whenever they went out of the house. They were not expected to wear a head covering when they were in their own homes or with family. That could be significant for how we understand something that we'll come to here in a few minutes. But around this time, another background thing we need to be aware of is that there was a widespread movement of women throughout the Roman Empire who, who were rejecting cultural customs. The so-called liberated woman. Among scholarship today, she's known as the new Roman woman. Women, these were women who were set on rejecting and rebelling against social expectations. One of those expectations they rejected outright was that a married woman needed to be faithful to her husband. You see, that was, in the Greco-Roman world, that was expected of wives. That couldn't be said of men. Married men, it was thought, uh, you know, their, their lust was of such a degree that they needed to have mistresses. So the men legally were actually fine to yes, have intimate relations with their wife for childbearing, but as they saw fit, sleep around. So they would go to these dinner parties, and there would be women who would signal their availability in particular ways, and these men would hook up with these women after dinner. That was a common cultural widespread custom in the Greco-Roman world. But women, married women, were expected to be faithful to their husbands to the point where they could actually be punished by law if they were found unfaithful. Okay, so with all of that in mind, uh, there's this movement of women in the empire rebelling against these expectations. They were typically high-class women of means who were saying, 
They had every right to sexual freedom, just like the men did. And the movement was actually such a concern in the Roman Empire that Emperor Augustus legislated against these women. He, he made laws to, to put this to a stop. Now here's why all of this matters, I think, for our understanding of 1 Corinthians 11. Because when these liberated women went out into public, when they went to those dinner parties, and they went with the intent of distancing themselves from their husbands and signaling their availability uh, for uh, you know, the exercise of so-called sexual freedom, how do you think they did it? They went out without a head covering. That's how they did it. They removed their head covering. They went into public gatherings without a head covering. So you see the potential scandal here. These Christian wives, here they are, when the church gathers in a public gathering where a meal was shared, and they are, there they are, standing up publicly, not wearing head coverings. And by doing this, they were identifying with this group of women who in the public eye were considered dishonorable, shameful, even a threat to the stability of the entire Roman Empire. Okay, if that's what's going on, then I think it makes sense why Paul says these women brought dishonor on their husbands because they were distancing themselves from their husbands, signaling sexual availability. By not wearing a head covering, that's what they were communicating. They were identifying with these immoral women. And when a woman was found guilty of infidelity, some of them, guess what happened? Some of them were publicly shamed by having their heads shaved. I think that's what Paul is alluding to when he goes on in verse 5 and says, it is the same. When you do this, it is the same as if her head were shaven. You pray and prophesy in the assembly without a head covering, and it's the same as appearing in public with your head shaven. The public dishonor is already done. But then Paul uh, ramps it up. If you see, he says, if you go on, keep doing this, you might as well just go ahead and shave your head. And we've got we to try to understand, what is he, what's he saying here? You see, a woman shaving her head in this time was tantamount to a woman rejecting her nature as a woman. That's key for our, us to understand. According to the accepted ancient uh, physiology of the day, a woman's hair was understood to actually be a key part of her reproductive system. Now, I, that, that's, that's weird. <laughs> uh, it's really strange. I'm not even going to explain it to you because it would get even more weird. But if you want to understand more, you can come and talk to me and I'll do my best to try to explain it. But we need to understand that was the, the thinking about nature at the time. That a woman's hair was a key part of her reproductive system and therefore something that uniquely set her apart from the man. So just as it was against nature for a man to shave his beard, so it is against nature, a rejection of nature, for a woman to shave her head. I think this is what Paul is appealing to, the shared understanding of nature in verses 14 and 15. 
where he says, Does not nature teach that it's disgraceful for a man to have long hair, but for a woman it is her glory? So again, a woman shaving her head is the same thing as her renouncing her nature as a woman. Her hair is her glory because it is an integral part, according to understanding uh, at that time, of her ability as a woman, in distinction from the man, to bear children. And Paul is saying that a wife praying or prophesying without a head covering is equivalent to this. It's equivalent to a woman renouncing her nature as a woman. It's the same thing as a woman shaving her head. Why? Because the woman is the glory of man. We'll come back to that here in just a few minutes and unpack that. But Paul is saying, by doing what she is doing, she is acting against, contrary to her nature as a woman. So Paul is calling Christian men and women to act like men and women in, a, in culturally appropriate ways. And Paul appears to be concerned, I think, with the church's public witness. I think that's what's actually being communicated in verse 10, where he says that a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head. Okay, that, that's what head coverings represented in the Roman culture, that the wife was under the authority of the husband. Now, we've been saying again and again in Sunday school, of course, the whole notion of authority in the Christian community is radically transformed from how it was conceived in the Greco-Roman world. But notice Paul says, do this because of the angels. That's weird, right? What, what do angels have to do with it? It's a, right, it's a good translation because the word is angeloi, the word for angels. But usually when we hear that word, we immediately think of you know, spiritual and material creatures. But we need to also understand that in the first century, this Greek word was used to, to refer not, not to a messenger, but to, but to someone else who had a distinct role and purpose. It was actually an official title for someone who would be sent by, a, by, a, by an authority or another party to go and investigate something and then to return with a report. So that was a word, that, that word was used to refer to these individuals. So if, if, if with that in mind, think about this. There's a concern, widespread concern in the Greco-Roman world uh, about these, these women causing trouble. And then there's the Christian community that's already under scrutiny because here are these people who re refuse to say Caesar is Lord. They don't worship the Roman pantheon. You know, many of these wives don't go along with their pagan husbands and, and worship, uh, worship these idols. And now word is starting to get out that women in these Christian communities are identifying with these new Roman women who were deemed by all as being subversive to the Roman Empire. I think it's very possible that angels, or as you even see in the ESV footnote, alternate translation, messengers, refers to unbelieving spectators who were sent into the Christian assemblies to observe what was going on and then to report back to the sender, perhaps authorities. 
If that's what was happening, then Paul is concerned about the impression given to unbelieving witnesses watching these Christians while they gathered together. And so you see, like the, like the men, these women were sending the wrong message. Now, maybe they belong to that libertine party in the Corinthian church we talked about last week who said, you know, we're, we're not under law, we're under grace, we're free to do whatever we want without thinking about the consequences. Or, or maybe, maybe they, they viewed um, the church as their family, as the New Testament teaches us to do. And they thought, well, we're meeting in a household, I'm among family here, it's okay if I remove my head covering. Or maybe, worst case scenario, for one reason or another, they were in fact identifying with these new Roman women. Whatever the motivation, the public witness of the church was being compromised. Instead of reflecting God's purposes for gender, they were causing confusion. Okay, so there's the problem, I think. Men and women misrepresenting what it means to be male and female. Both were betraying their roles as men and women, bringing dishonor instead of reflecting the glory of another. And so the misuse of head coverings in the Corinthian church, it was really just a symptom of a much deeper problem. Men and women in the Christian community were failing to reflect God's purposes for gender. So that means Paul's concern here is it's not merely to uphold some passing, fleeting social custom. His concern is for Christian men and women to reflect God's purposes for gender, which bears moral and theological significance. But this was the problem. Christians failing to live faithfully as men and women. So, how does Paul address the problem? You're all okay with going over a little bit today, right? We'll keep going. How does Paul address the problem? He does so, I think, with a theological understanding of gender grounded in creation. He addresses the problem with a theological understanding of gender grounded in creation. Now, in contrast, today gender is considered a malleable thing, right? something that exists on a kind of spectrum. And, and gender roles are seen as nothing more than, you know, social constructs that people make up, particularly those in positions of power in order to control others. And certainly that can occur and does occur. It has nothing to do, though, people believe, with gender. One's, uh, one's gender has nothing to do with nature or biology or their physical bodies. We get to determine our identity and purpose. That is the widespread message of our culture today. And notice, though, in contrast to that, Paul teaches us to think about gender in a theological way, and he shows that distinguishing between male and female is important and deeply meaningful. And so when we distort gender, when we obscure what men and women are for, Gender, we'll see, I think, is ordered by God to communicate something far greater than ourselves. It's meant to communicate something about Christ and the church as his glory. 
And so take a look at how Paul addresses this problem in Corinth. As I said, he goes all the way back to creation. At this point, notice the shift. He's, he's no longer focusing only upon uh, certain men and wives. He's now talking about men and women more generally. And to tell us what it means to be male and female, he does so by reflecting on the creation of the first man and woman. And see what he does. He points to a real difference between men and women. Now, that's not going to go over well today, is it? Um, because it's believed today, there's this idea of, okay, we've got we've to have equality. And if we're going to have equality between men and women, we have to have sameness. We have to have sameness across the board. Otherwise, there's going to be a superior and inferior. There's going to be some kind of inequality. But Paul clearly teaches that there is a difference between men and women. But what kind of difference is it? That's the question we need to ask. It's not one of equality or inequality. The difference between men and women is a matter of glory. It's a matter of glory. The difference between men and women, Paul says here, lies along the lines of glory. So look at verse 7. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. Okay, so here is a gendered difference that has implications for how we live as men and women. Man, the image and glory of God. Woman, the glory of man. So notice Paul connects glory to gender, to being male and female. Now he's not saying that women are not made in the image of God. Of course, the very first chapter of the Bible teaches that, doesn't it? That God made mankind, male and female, after his own image and likeness. But Paul is saying that men and women differ along the lines of glory. And he proves this by appealing to the sequence of the creation of the first man and the first woman. So look at verses 8 and 9. Man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. So woman was made from man and for man, Paul says. Now, unfortunately, some have, I think, tragically misread the significance of what Paul is saying here in terms of superiority and inferiority. Because the man came first, he must somehow be more significant, more important, more superior than the woman. Because the woman came from the man and was made for the man, she must somehow be subordinate, less than the man. But that is not at all what Scripture is teaching. Her being created from and for man is, I think, the Bible's way of telling us that woman is the glory of man. But what does that mean? What are we saying when we say woman is the glory of man? Well, Paul is relying on the creation week. Genesis chapters 1 and 2. So we, we need to go back to the creation week for just a moment. And realize that in that context of the creation week, that what comes second 
brings fullness and completion. Brings, we might say, glory. It is the fullness of what came before it. So just think about the days of creation with me. Uh, You've got the first day, establishing the order of day and night. Fourth day, which is parallel to it. Uh, The first, and it fills out that order with the sun and the moon to illuminate the day and night. And the second day, sky and land are separated. And the fifth day, parallel to it, fills the sky and the sea with living creatures. And then the third day, land and sea are separated. And parallel to it, on the sixth day, God creates land, animals, and man. So there's this, this developing pattern that is meant to prepare us for this. What comes first sets out the order, and what comes second glorifies it by bringing its fullness and completion. Okay, so Adam came first. He sets the order for humanity. But doesn't the creation narrative make it very clear that he is, in some sense, incomplete on his own? That he cannot fulfill God's purposes for humanity without her until she is brought forth from his side and is revealed uh, to be his helper. He is without his glory apart from her. But with the creation of woman, man is crowned with glory and honor and she brings fullness to what God intends for humanity. Now, you might be thinking, okay, this, all, this is all abstract stuff. So what does this mean, Jared? What does this mean in practical terms? What implications does this have for how we think about what it means to be a man or a woman? We need to ask that important question. What, what are men for? What are women for? Let's start with the first one. What are men for? What does Paul say? Again, Man is the image and glory of God. Now, Paul here is, he's giving you a few words in a sentence to summarize a rich, deep theology of gender that runs from Genesis to Revelation. We've got to understand, Paul is giving us a a key to unlock the teaching of the whole Bible here. Man is the image and glory of God. Now, glory glory always has to do with visibility in the Bible. Glory has to do here with the visibility of the image. We could say that glory is the image made visible. So man is to reflect the image of God. And in this way, the glory of God is seen. But what's the story of Scripture? The first man, Adam, is made in the image of God, but man fell. And the image of God was all but lost. Yes, fallen man still has the status of imago Dei, made in the image of God, but functionally speaking, the image of God is in ruins. But who does the Bible identify as the true image of God? Who is the radiance of the glory of God in human form? Who makes the Glory of God visible. Well, Scripture is clear. It's okay. We're Presbyterians. You can answer the question. Who is it? It's Jesus. It's Jesus. It's God the Son. So passages like 2 Corinthians 4.4, 
Colossians 1.15, identify Jesus as the image of God. And so we can say, Christ is the image of God. But when God saves us, part of his redemptive plan is it not. When he saves us, the image of God is renewed in us and we are conformed to Christ's image. That he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Now, if this is true of men and women, we are saved, men and women, to become like Jesus. But I am convinced it is also right to say that redeemed men as men are called in unique ways to reflect the image of Jesus Christ. That means, dear brothers, Christ should be seen in our lives as we lead and serve particularly within our homes and among the covenant community. And when we look at Christ who who sets the pattern of the image. What do we see? He never used his authority to exalt himself. He never used his authority for his own good, but to serve, to lay down his life. He did not come to this world to subjugate his beloved, but to free her that she might rule by his side over the new creation. He cares for her as bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. Hebrews 2 tells us that he suffered for her sake, tasting death for her. Ephesians 5, we all know that he loved her by giving herself up for her. And now, now in his ascended glory, he exercises dominion and puts all things underneath his feet and his head over all for who? For the church, for his people, who are identified in that verse as his fullness. The one who fills all in all. That's Ephesians 1, 22 and 23. See, man, this means whether you're married or single, Christ shows you what manhood looks like. It's not self-serving. It's not self-exalting. It is exhaustively others serving and God exalting. Being a man in Christ means serving, caring, protecting, nurturing, sacrificing for others. And yes, that means especially for the women in our lives. In our homes, it means husbands lay down their lives for their wives and nurture their children in the Lord. In the church, it means that men called to lead reflect the care of Christ for his beloved bride, the church. You see, gender is ordered this way to reflect this Christological reality. And what about women? Paul says, woman is the glory of man. Now, what does this mean practically? Again, I said Paul is tapping into this rich biblical theme running from the beginning of Genesis to the end of Revelation. And he's tapping into this here in 1 Corinthians 11. So let me try to trace this theme as quickly as I can here. And I think as we do so, we'll get an idea of what this means, what this looks like in practical terms. Let's briefly consider Eve, the Proverbs 31 woman, some ladies in the New Testament church, 
and see how ultimately this is all orienting us to the identity of the people of God, the church of Jesus Christ. Start with Eve. What was her role in relation to Adam? Well, we've seen she was brought forth from him, not to be ruled over by him, but to rule by his side. She was called in the Hebrew text his, his helper, which is the very same title used over and over again in the Old Testament as a title for God as the strong ally of his people. She was brought forth from him, not to be placed under him, but to be beside him and exercise dominion with him over all things. So you see, God's purpose for humanity was incomplete without her. He was without his glory until she was brought forth from his side. Now jump ahead to the Proverbs 31 woman. What, what does she teach us about woman as the glory of man in, in practical terms? We talked about this again in Sunday school this morning. You know, notice, you need to recognize that this famous passage about the Proverbs 31 woman or the Proverbs 31 wife doesn't actually begin talking about the woman. It begins in the first seven verses talking about a man. In this case, the, the king, a wise king, who is being called by his mother to step into his role. Not merely, I think, as we've suggested in Sunday school, as king, but as a man. He is to step into his role as being one who uses his position of authority, not for his own sake, not to get drunk on wine, not to live it up for his own pleasure, but to listen to the cries of the needy, to care for those around him, to lay down his life for the sake of others, to be a king that cares for the vulnerable and the helpless. Then, after that, Proverbs 31 goes on to describe a fitting companion for such a king. And in this beautiful description of the virtues of the Proverbs 31 woman, in summary, she is one who is productive and provides. And as she does so, she's, she's active in the public square. She cares for the needy. She mirrors and reflects the very same virtues that are ascribed to her husband. And Proverbs 31 says that in this way, in this way, she brings praise to her husband in the gates. Now, Proverbs 31 has a really neat way of communicating the significance of this to us because in that whole section about the wife, only one verse is about the man. And in Hebrew, it's a chiasm. So it's right at the center. It's at the, the peak uh, of, of this text. And so surrounding the virtues of this woman is the king who is being honored and praised within the gates. Proverbs 31 is saying, she is his crowning glory. Now, if we understand that gender is not insignificant, that it's meant to teach us something about Christ and the church, do you think Proverbs 20, 31 is saying something about Christ and the church as his crowning glory, as she begins to reflect her king? jump ahead here. I know I need to keep going, and I thank you for your patience today. 
Let's talk just for a minute about women in the New Testament. Let me just mention a few names here. You've got Lydia, founding member of the church in Philippi, who was important to Paul and Silas, who housed missionaries and gave of her abundance for the work of the church. In Romans 16, you have Phoebe, who Paul identifies as a sister and servant of the church, someone who's responsible for delivering the manuscript of Romans to the Roman Christians. You have Prisca, a fellow worker in Christ Jesus, a co-laborer with Paul in gospel ministry. Together, Prisca and her husband taught Apollos, the gifted preacher. Together, Paul says they risked their, their lives for his sake. Then there's Mary. This is all Romans 16. There's Mary. Paul says she worked hard for the church. And there are many, many others we could look to as examples. But if we just consider these ones that I've highlighted, Paul identifies these women as servants of the church, involved in important gospel ministry, co-laborers, fellow workers with him in the Lord, beloved sisters in Christ, and women who were putting their life on the line for gospel ministry. And so as we summarize all of this, strong ally, the excellent wife whose reputation is her husband's glory, faithful servants and laborers in the church. Friends, this, this is the Bible's description of godly femininity. Then we have all of this if we understand that Woman in the Bible is figurally significant. She points beyond herself, just as the man is to point beyond himself to Christ. We have the church, the motherly bride in the book of Revelation. The church described always in feminine terms as the bride of Christ, the new Jerusalem, and at the end of the Bible, coming down from heaven, having the glory of God, John says. See, the church of Jesus Christ, Revelation is saying, she is his glory. And this really is no surprise if we see that it's anticipated in Adam and Eve. It's described in the excellent wife. It's reflected in Christian women who serve in the church. And all of it, all of it is meant to point us to the glorified people of God who together are the glory and fullness of God. Of Christ. And so it's safe to say that what Paul is teaching in 1 Corinthians 11 does not put women down or demean them. Woman as the glory of man is a summary of the significance of woman. She tells us who we are as the people of God. You see, femininity is ordered by the gospel. And as it does so, it orients all of God's people, men and women, to our identity as God's beloved. And so, ladies, that means that the life the gospel calls you to, yes, in, the, in your homes and in the church and in all of your life, it, it reflects who we are as the church of Jesus Christ, identified as his fullness and glory. We are his crowning glory as we, we live to serve him here and one day beside him as we, alongside of him, reign over the new creation. Now, if this is what gender is about, to tell us about Christ and the church as his glory, 
Do you see why it's a big deal if we get gender wrong? Do you see what gets distorted if masculinity goes wrong? The image of Christ is diminished. What goes wrong if we distort femininity? We, We lose the image of what the church is to be as the people of God. So a theology of gender, again, I I hope you understand at this point, it's not simple, (laughs) but it is rich and profound. It is unapologetically theological. It's morally formative, and it is Christ-exalting. It is ultimately about Christ, who is the image and glory of God in the church, who is his fullness. It is about the Lord Jesus Christ, who exercised his authority for the church and about him being glorified because of who she now is. His crowning glory. May this gospel reality sink deeply into our bones and transform our relationships, how we live as men and women, how we live as husbands and wives, how we Serve as men and women in the church so that Christ would be glorified. May God grant us the grace to reflect his purposes for men and women so that all the glory would go to Christ. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage and all that you have to say to us in it. Pray that all that's true would be planted within our hearts and that we would be transformed so that indeed all the glory would go to Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.